Brendan Kumarasamy was afraid of communication well into his teen years. He trained himself to master the fear. He improved his skills by using the same determination as an athlete does when competing in high-level sports. Today, he is the founder of Master Talk, a coaching business he started to help ambitious executives and business owners become great communicators in their industries. He has created a plethora of free content to help others to improve others, to prove their skills through his YouTube channel. Please welcome Brendan, fellow Canadian, I might add. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the kind introduction, Debbie. It's great to be here. So I have to ask you, what was it like growing up in Montreal when you didn't speak French? That's the right way of starting this conversation, Debbie. It was super challenging. You know, my parents immigrated from Sri Lanka in the early 90s to Canada. And I was born and raised in Montreal, but I did not know French. My parents sent me to French school so I'd learn it, which was probably one of the best decisions they've made for me that I'm super grateful for since I'm fluent in it. But my whole life, not only did I struggle with communication, I was presenting a language I didn't even know. <laughs> so when I was in first grade and second grade, look at the audience and go, bonjour. So yeah, I was definitely tough. <laughs> Even if you don't know English, to learn, I've talked to hockey players that have been in Quebec, and when they haven't learned English, and they have to learn English and French, it's quite confusing. It's definitely challenging, especially if you don't know either. Then that's tough. Did your parents speak any French at all, or did they learn it as well? My dad did pretty well in French. My mom, though, struggled a lot. Even to this day, I still speak to her my mother tongue. I speak three languages, English, French, and the third one is Tamil. That's the one I speak to my mom. And how much of that language barrier played into that fear of communications? Yeah, for me, especially early in life, big time. And not just from a presentation perspective, Debbie, it was also really hard for me to make friends. So another thing that you might not know about me is I had a big surgery on my arm when I was mm -hmm. younger. So because of that, my arm is crooked, right? Even today. Okay. So when I, was, when I was in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, not only did I not know the language, I had a big cast too that was like on top of my body and all this stuff. So no one wanted to be friends with me. It was really hard to socialize too. Oh, gosh. So you, the upbringing certainly wasn't easy. And I've read that you've had strained relationship with your father. Did that also make you shy or rebellious? Definitely more rebellious, I would say. You never know how these situations occur, but happy to talk about that. So yeah, one of the main reasons that I became successful in life was because of my dad. Because he always thought I was going to amount to nothing. He was a heavy alcoholic. So I was super competitive growing up as a kid, except my competition wasn't sports. My competition, to your point that you said so well in the bio, my competition was presentations and I wanted to prove him wrong. So I went to business school. I was a like kind of like a high level athlete, but for business and I trained hours and hours and hours so I could get the dream job that he said I could never get. But then after he passed away, I learned a very valuable lesson that my dad was the greatest gift I could ever ask for. Hmm. The reason is because if he never moved to Canada in the first place, I would have been stuck in a third world country. It would have been really hard for me to have the success. He's the one who made the decision to come to Montreal. He's the one who made the decision to have me learn French. If it wasn't for all of these factors, I never would have went to Concordia University that has the world's largest case competition program. I never would have became the success. So it was never about beating him. He started the game from the start. I never would have been able to play. 
I feel that's one of the big healings I've had in my life. It's so interesting how the the strong parent, the one that you might have that contentious relationship with, with is the one that does shape our future. They're the ones that make things happen. They they kind of motivate you. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. And what about your mother? What did you learn from her? So much. I mean, I still love with her, by the way, just so people know that. My mom has taught me so much about life, but I would say that the biggest thing that she's taught me by far is generosity. I'll tell you a story. When I was 11, 10, 11 years old, I was standing in front of a bus stop and I find a $10 bill on the floor. And I get super excited because back then for me, $10 felt like 10000 like the candy that I could buy, the video <laughs> games I could save up for. Like it was nuts. I pick up this $10 bill. After school was over, I go to my mom and I go, Mom, I found $10. The first thing she asks me, are you sure this is not somebody else's $10, Brent? Did you take this from somebody else? I said, no, Mom. I found it on the floor and I wasn't lying. But I was happy that it, nobody else was around, so I got the 10 bucks. I was a bit selfish in that way. And then she laughed and she told me a story. She said, you know, when I was younger, it was like the 90s. I just immigrated to Canada. I would always look on the floor when I walk because she's like a petite woman because she doesn't want to fall or anything. There's just two women in front of her who accidentally step over a $20 bill. $20. So she picks it up. And then she tells me something that forever changes my life because mm. it was never meant to be a lesson. She said, oh, and I used that $20 to feed my friend's family because they couldn't eat that day. But wow. she never said it as a lesson. She just said, yeah, that's, it's just something she does. Like kind of like doing the dishes. I use the 20 bucks that we, by the way, need because my mom was making minimum wage. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, I just fed a family. That always stuck with me. I told her that story 10 years later. And she goes, you remember that? Almost in shock. So yeah, that's the biggest thing she taught me. Wow, that's a great gift. What were some of the other qualities you admired about both of your parents? I would say the big one was really work ethic. You know, one thing I really can't stand from other humans is not what their point of view is on politics. It's not like any of that stuff. It's how much they complain. <laughs> how much they complain. I think it's so fascinating because just for a fact, though, I was born in Canada. So I am definitely a second generation immigrant. I wasn't born in a third world country, but I definitely appreciate the perspective. Because my parents drilled it to me like crazy. 10% of the world's population doesn't have clean water. So I would say the big thing is realize that even if you think you weren't given a silver spoon, you actually were given a silver spoon. Even if you're the poorest person in Canada, right? And it's a perspective a lot of people don't like to hear. You're still mm -hmm. in the top 10% of richest people on earth minimum that is really the lesson that they've ingrained in me is like don't complain about anything nothing is given to you in life and you should always fight for it that's why when i started master talk i had that mentality i told myself i don't care if it's only the host listening to me on this episode if i'm willing to go on ten thousand, not a hundred ten thousand podcasts i will be successful because i'll have ten thousand subscribers and it ended up being a lot less than ten thousand but that's the mindset that they've ingrained into me. And that's what's really made me invincible. Wow. What are some of the jobs that you've had before now? Right. So let's start with the beginning. Let's start with the <laughs> shitty ones before, before I gloat about the cool jobs I've had. So the first ever job that counts because I worked longer than, than a day. I remember one job I had, I stayed there for a day and I quit. But so the first one was an <laughs> eco center. So We've so, all had one of those. <laughs> yeah. 
So in South Asian culture, it's a little bit different because your parents don't want you to work, even if they don't have any money, because they want you to focus on their education because they see education mm-hmm. as the way out. Even if we weren't making money, they would rather take on credit card debt than for me to work at McDonald's. But at some point, my, my dad lost his job and it's like we had no choice at some point. So when I was 15 or 16, I pressured my mom. I said, I, look, I need to work. I'll study, but like we need to feed our family or so we're all going to die. So I got a job at an eco center. And it was horrible. So for those who don't know what this is, an eco center is basically an area where you dump trash or that you're not allowed to dump in a regular trash or in a recycling bin. So I'll give you some examples. Batteries, like big batteries or house material, you know, like bricks and stuff like that. So a lot of builders and people who like give up toxins, like paints, cleaning material, you can't dump that in a regular trash can. So they go to an eco-center, the people are eco-friendly anyways, eco-conscious, and they dump it there. My job, that was paying a very, very lucrative 12, 13 bucks an hour, and I'm being sarcastic there, was to sort all of these toxic chemicals. And I would come home every splattered and pained, it was a horrible job. That was the first one. Then obviously the story gets less interesting because then when <laughs> I got to university, I got really good jobs. I worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers at one of the big mm. four accounting firms that I busted my ass to get a job at. Then I landed a great job at IBM for a few years before I started doing what I do today. How did you transition into what you're doing today? When I went to university, I was studying at Concordia in Montreal. The mission was never to become a business owner. The mission was not to do, I didn't even know you could be, how I could be interviewed. Like, how is that even a thing? I thought Price Waterhouse Coopers, those who know the company, I thought it was a water bottling company. That's how lost I was. When in actuality, it's an accounting firm. <laughs> I had a prom suit when I was 90 because we couldn't afford anything, right? I couldn't afford a suit. So I got to business school. And I started met talking to people who are three years older than me who were getting jobs at companies I wanted to get at. Because they said I needed to work for these companies. I went up to them and I said, what did you do? I thought they were going to say study, get good grades. They always responded with do case competitions. I said, what's a case competition? They said, oh, well, you're like 20 years old. You do this presentation in front of executives and they give you jobs. I said, well, that's my way out. I started doing these case competitions more to get a job. But I developed an unhealthy obsession with them. I always call myself, especially in the context of your show, I think you'll appreciate it. I'm the Michael Jordan that nobody gives a shit about. (laughs) That's me. Right. The reason I say that is because when Michael Jordan and I I for sure, I don't even need to ask you. I know you've seen it. You've seen the Last Dance documentary on Netflix. Right. I'm sure everyone's listening to this has too. I'm exactly like MJ was. I was a tyrant when I was in university. Because after I started winning competitions, and you can tell probably the intensity of my voice that I took this shit really seriously. (laughs) Then after, which is a weird thing to be obsessed about presentations, I became the lead coach for all of the new teams. I was yelling at students. I was reprimanding them at 2 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) And so that they can go to Serbia and Australia. Like our business schools would fund all of their flights. So they would go there and out present everyone else. That's how I learned. But once again, the mission was to get a great job. I landed a very lucrative job at IPM that was going to change my family's future. You know, six-figure starting salary, 80-hour work weeks. I was ready for it. That's what these competitions prepare you for. But I felt a lack of fulfillment because I was starting to make money. And I realized for the first time in my life that money doesn't actually bring you happiness. It was a shock. 
Like, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, these influencers. I love gurus. that you said that. <laughs> right. But you know, a lot of influencer gurus, they say that. And I didn't believe it. I was like, yeah, right on. Because you got money. Like, what the hell do you know? I got two minimum wage salary parents. And by the way, it did change my parents' life. I retired yeah. my mom when I was like 22. So yeah, because we all lived together. That's how I retired. But I saw a void. And that's when Master Talk appeared. I realized mm-hmm. that I was retiring from my professional athlete career in case competitions. And I need something new to do. So Master Talk was born. You've done pretty well with raising your driver rate on YouTube, which is not an easy thing to do. Oh, my God. People do not realize how hard it is to get something going on that platform unless your name is Brad Pitt or something. (laughs) (laughs) There's no secret sauce to it either, except hard work and determinations once you made that decision how was that learning curve and getting master talk going and to where it is today i appreciate you saying that thanks for the kind words when i got to the end of my university career i just feel some people are wired different some people you know they want to spend more time with their family that's awesome they want to go shopping and other people like some of the amazing professional athletes they just only get fulfillment from just doing cool shit they just, they just want the bigger thing. And that's that was the game for me. When I realized that I was the youngest professional speech coach in the world, that was, by the way, totally an accident, 100% an accident. Because I was coaching these people because I just love coaching. It's in my blood. I never thought you could make money from it. This is not a money thing. Like, I'm going to go work at IBM and make my money there. And then what happened was a lot of the students I'd coach, a community I'd built for three years of helping these students who had went on to get incredible jobs out of university. They asked me a question I didn't have the answer to. The question was, how did you learn how to speak? I didn't know the answer because I didn't have money for a coach. I didn't invest in all these resources. That's when I saw the gap in the market. Nobody Mm. was sharing free content that was actually good on how to communicate effectively. So that's what sparked the idea. But now the next question becomes, how did I grow the channel? I know you'll appreciate this being in sports. I'm a big believer of not relying on the algorithm. That was Mm -hmm. never how I got to 25,000. It was really on, forget a thousand followers, are you willing to have a thousand conversations? Thank you for that because people get so hung up on algorithms. That's the key. I actually got a thousand subscribers in four months. But the reason I got a thousand subscribers, because the tactic is important to consider, was not, you know, I just made really good content. And then the algorithm just looked at me and said, you know, Brendan, we choose you. Of course not. It's 2019. Nobody's picking me. It's saturated as hell to be successful on YouTube. I went back to my community and I DM 1700 people individually. I said, look, guys, this is a literally quote because I'm speaking this because I know you'll appreciate. So I'm really like, okay, guys. I've coached you for bloody three years. I got all of you multiple six-figure jobs for free. I didn't ask for anything. So you're going to do something for me now. And I was very aggressive about the demand. I'm not asking you for money. I'm asking you for help. I'm trying to make the biggest YouTube channel in the world on communication because everyone else sucks. You're going to help me. And all of them <laughs> did. All of them did. Oh, wow. They all, they all promoted the YouTube channel. Even if it was shit, it was dog shit back then. My YouTube channel was terrible. <laughs> right? But they got me to 1,000. And that's what I needed. And then I took 25% of my personal salary. Instead of moving out of my mom's place, I stayed with her. And I took all that that $1,000 a month in rent, and I poured it into my best friend. I said, professionalize my YouTube channel. I'll give you 25% of what I make at IBM. Let's make this work. That's how my YouTube channel popped. Awesome. So what is it you absolutely love to do about this? 
Like, what's your favorite thing about this channel? My favorite, yeah, my favorite thing that I've never talked about actually is creating a fair play. I think it's unacceptable that the geniuses of our society don't have free access to communication tools. Mm. Think of it like this. When Elon Musk was 15 years old, and he's probably the greatest professional athlete in the world right now. What is he building rockets and <laughs> cars? And he's like crazy. Nobody helped him with this communication. He was a 15-year-old kid that nobody cared about. I thought it was nuts. I thought about the next Elon Musk. And I realized nobody was helping that 15-year-old girl who might be in South Africa, who might be in Cambodia. The reason nobody's helping that girl is because people who are just as good as me at communication skill, coaching, or better, they have no incentive to share this for free. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because communication coaches charge a lot of money. And of course, I'm not here trying to be a saint. They charge a lot of money to work with me too. But the difference between me and all the other coaches is it wasn't enough for me to just make the money. I needed to also democratize. If I'm going to make money, I might as well democratize this for the rest of the world. I feel my fellow coaches in this industry don't take that level up insight, which is, okay, make your money, but help the 15-year-old girl because she doesn't have anyone. That's what really fueled me to take this seriously. Oh, my God. I love that. So what's the best advice you've ever gotten? The best advice I've ever gotten, it sounds a bit condescending because I came up with it. But it's inspiring by from other people, so I'll, so I'll front by saying that, is and I was in my basement. I thought it rhymed and it worked. Is be insane or be the same. If you want to be like everyone else, it's totally fine. Which obviously you aren't, just by the quality of the way you're interviewing, <laughs> right? But for me, it's if you want to do something special with your life, we need to realize that the people who are doing crazy things are often crazy people, right? Take Tom Brady. The guy's crazy. He was like one of the last people to be – he barely got into the NFL. Barely. But his work ethic was just so, like, inconceivable that he just beat everyone over the long game. I feel in life it's the same thing. All of us are always trying to do what other people expect, whereas I'm the guy who started a YouTube channel on executive communication tips – then I went to coach people who are double my age, make really good money, yet I still live in my mom's basement, yet I'm too scared to drive a car, I'm able to karaoke in eight different languages, I love clubbing with my family, I'm in the 0.5, not 5, I'm in the 0.5% of listeners on Spotify for Justin Bieber. How the hell does any of this make any sense? <laughs> and that is the point. When yeah. every decision in your life makes sense to the only person that it should, which is you. Yeah. probably making the right decisions. So be insane or be the same would be my best piece of advice. Great. One last question. What is one simple thing people can do to elevate their communication today? Right. If I only had one tip to share, it would be a question. And the question is simple, but not easy. How would your life change if you were an exceptional communicator? A lot of us, we focus on the negativity, the stress. Like in the gym, we focus on the workouts. We focus on, oh my God, I have to go to the, I have to do this. I have to take this run. I have to, but we don't focus on the outcome enough. The six pack abs, the glory of victory, or in the context of communication, how our life would be different. Because we dream about the expensive things we want to buy, but we don't dream about a life in which we're a better communicator. And that applies for all of us, even if you don't want to be at a stage. Why? Because communication is the way you talk to your family. Communication is the way that you order food at a restaurant. Communication is the way that you meet strangers when we travel. And when we realize that communication is every moment of our life, 
that's how we get better. Thank you so much, Brendan. This was awesome. I grew a lot just listening. I love your saying. <laughs> Be insane. <laughs> but being insane. I love that. So thank you. Thank you, Debbie. You did such an exceptional job with this. I really appreciate it.